0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books and Indian Religions, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Maria Haim, uh, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Religion at Amherst College. We'll be speaking about a brand new uh, uh, Princeton University Press publication. Words for the Heart, A Treasury of Emotions from Classical India. Maria, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me, Raj.
1: So you'll have to tell us, how did you get into emotion, the study of emotion or thinking about emotion?
2: Yeah, well, um, I most of my work um, before this book was really centered on, um, or at least in the last couple of decades, centered on I guess you could say the moral psychology of Pali Buddhism, Um, been very immersed in the Abhidhamma tradition and and particularly the work of um, Buddhigosa, this fifth century Pali Buddhist thinker. And so for a long time, I've been interested in psychology and emotions and intentions and motivations and, um, a whole range of types of things. Um, and I've published work on particular emotions within the pali tradition. Um, but I hadn't necessarily figured out how to talk about emotion more broadly within the Indic tradition. Um, and so this book came about where I was finished with a lot of the Buddhaghosa work. Um, needing to come out of this kind of deep immersion in one system and one thinker and one obsessive kind of, um, uh, deep dive into him. And, um, I encountered, uh, Timothy, uh, T- uh, Tiffany Watt Smith's little book. It's called the book of human emotion. And she's a emotions researcher and she had drawn together, um, emotion words from all different languages and all different traditions and sort of put together a cute little, uh, book of anecdotes about different emotions and I began to wonder maybe this is what I need to kind of go wide instead of deep into one thinker and how could I uh, gather up some of the many emotion words I've encountered in the Indian sources over the decades Uh, and then it really occurred to me that this idea of a kosha um, a treasury which is of course an Indian genre uh, might be a great way to gather them up. So a kosha is can be a thesaurus. We have Amara's kosha, um, a word book, um, but it can also be a collection of poems or short literary pieces or philosophical um, reflections. And so it seemed to be the right, idea for what I wanted to do. I didn't want to write a dictionary. I didn't write, wanted to write, a, write, write an encyclopedia or something comprehensive, um, but I liked the particularist approach by or a lexical kind of approach by looking closely at particular words, I could draw out some of the nuance and the thinking um, in Indian sources quite broadly uh so the kosha then so and then i really began to run as you can see in the book with this treasury um metaphor you know that these are gems drawn from all different sort of mind from all different uh sources and in uh indian thought very broadly conceived and so i had the great privilege and luxury of just reading across every genre um it has buddhist sources in it of course but also the epics and uh, I do heavily from Rasa theory. Um, I looked at a lot of Shastra. I looked at a lot of philosoph- philosophical texts. I looked at many different kinds of poems. I got into medical texts. Um, so it was this wonderful opportunity to kind of just read really widely and gather up things that I thought were beautiful or fascinating, and collect them in this in this treasury.
1: You no, know, you you ended uh, just now on. Um... A great place to segue into the process right there's so much you choose from um you know what was that journey like for you in terms of deciding um what to allocate where what to include or not um ways in which you were thinking of emotion or emotionality
2: yeah so a really great question um well i I kind of early settled on. I mean, I I really feel that this English word emotion is very restricted in some ways. It's probably not a term we can live without. And it kind of, you know, opens up what the kinds of phenomena I want to look at. Um, But I didn't want to heavily police emotions. Um, You know, there's a whole literature in Western philosophy about what constitutes an emotion, the kind of ontological questions about emotion. And I see this word emotion is very shallow historically, Um, for most of English in the history of the English language, people did not use this word emotion, it's very recent. Um, So it's parochial and it's provincial, and it has a lot more to do with modern English speakers than anything carved in nature or anything we see sort of historically Uh, deep even in the Western tradition to say nothing of the Indian traditions um, where we have very different metacategories and very different conceptions. And so I needed this word emotion, but I didn't want to be too tethered to it. Um, So as I try to talk about in my introduction, I really kind of looking at emotion-like words, dispositions, moods, um, uh, very broadly conceived and didn't want to have a lot of strictures around that. And then in terms of how i found things i started with things that i already knew so um, i started with a lot of terms and uh that i've already either written about or been interested in from buddhist philosophy um and buddhist psychology um and then i the probably the most pleasurable part of the project was just going back and reading things i hadn't read um you know since graduate school perhaps or had only read in passing or only dipped into once in a while so I read, and we have these wonderful, uh, the Clay Sanskrit Library and the, all of the um, materials coming out with the Morthy Classical Library of India and other many other sources. And so I read a lot of stuff in translation, which was just a, a treat to, to read across literature in so many different ways. Um, and so I really followed the wonderful translations of so many scholars in our field and when something would jump out at me, you know, I'd wonder, Oh, what, what is the Sanskrit word for that? Or what is, you know, and then I'd go back and find it. And then that would become a, an entry. So a lot of it, I would say that was the, the most fun part of the treasury was that just discovery, Why don't you know, just looking at reading a lot of stuff and looking uh, for words. And then I felt like I had to do some work that like, if I hadn't encountered them, like I had to, you know, there are just some terms we have to deal with, <laughs> you know, we to deal with, um, Words for craving, trishna. Um, I had to deal with, you know, the gunas. Not, I had to deal with, but I had to go in and research particular terms. And so I went on basis of my instincts, where you know, or what we might imagine, where I might go to to look for some of these terms. Um, so there was a research element of it too of just trying to track down who has a good discussion of um, particular terms that I would want to draw from Um, but as you may know or at least what I try to say in the introduction is that I'm not trying to be comprehensive or encyclopedic or generic it's really more
1: generative
2: yeah it's more to be generative I'm much more interested not in conveying any notion that I'm getting at you know a basic notion of these emotions or a generic notion of them i'm rather much more interested in the poignant anecdote or the story or the philosophical nugget that pulls out uh, or even evokes uh, an emotional experience rather than trying to to be um to speak of emotions of, of these terms in general and very general ways. So that was, um, so it's a little idios It is, I shouldn't say a little, it is idiosyncratic and <laughs> it's quirky. And it's, um, other people would have come, come up with different emotion terms and certainly different passages if they were doing something of the same project. Um, but I'm hoping that, um, readers find pleasure in some of these terms or find, find new ideas or that maybe this even begins to open up to study the emotions and and it for you know indian text or scholars of indian texts um further so um it wasn't meant to be entirely you know systematic research project it was also it was meant from the beginning to be something that was fun Creative. and crosses over into uh, a more general readership than any of my other work has done
1: Oh, without without question it lends itself to um, to more general readership people interested in ideas and experiences and you know, all things in dick um, you know it, i completely understand uh, why the word emotions is used because it's you know it's a great shorthand in english to point to you know something much more oceanic you know, um, and 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 uh, and yet, of course, it's so much more than what we think of as emotions in English. And and you know, to me, you know, um, I have I have I have papers that say I know religion or or Sanskrit narrative, but I'll be really honest in my heart of hearts, my core expertise in this life is people. You know, how people work. You know, what drives them, personal growth work, and and really, so many of the entries to my mind, they. They really get at the guts of the human experience, what we think of as the human experience, what, what humans experience palpably and subjectively interacting with the world and others. So um, certainly um, uh, it's, it's wonderfully atypical for an academic publication and probably well, to be well-received by a larger audience. But just to give listeners a sense, I mean, there's there, there are, if I'm not mistaken, 177, uh, entries, and just uh, randomly, uh, yeah, I'll just pick one randomly here. Satisfaction. Okay, we've all had the experience of satisfaction, perhaps, uh, one would hope. Um, but but this is, gives you a sense of, of what an entry might be like. Satisfaction in a sense of contentment is usually a good thing, See, but when it becomes complacency, it can hinder progress and development. So it's wonderfully anchored, the experience is anchored in something of an Indic mindset or an attitude towards, you know, a, a, a spiritual growth. Um, and it goes on to, to, to mention some of the satisfactions that delimit uh, or, or uh, impede restrain or potential for growth and, and some that actually su- support it. So it's rich, right? It's there's emotionality there's philosophy, there's spirituality. Um, what do you see as, the primary purpose or purposes uh, of the book? Like, what do you hope it would affect?
2: Um, well, for me, it will be enough if, if readers find pleasure in the entries. Um, it really is meant to be, you know, if, if I succeed in any way, bringing out something you know deep gut level with human experience it's only because i'm following these indian texts and, and how they're doing it um so that to me is it, you know that that'll be a win if um if people find something and find entries that speak to them um as human beings uh and show that the incredible nuance and texture with which indian texts have have got at that um so that's the, that's my main goal, actually. Um, and so in that sense, I I'm, I think of it as kind of almost a, like a literary text. Um, if it winds up, you know, stimulating more work and emotions. I mean, I've been surprised as I've kind of uh, been looking at a range of different scholarly works, partly to create this project, is how few... Times you can open the index and find the word emotion or open the index and find particularly emotion words of any of our scholarship right it just hasn't been thematized we thematize other things that aren't part of the linguistic world of ancient india we thematize religion that's a completely western construct we thematize ethics we can thematize law we thematize so many different things but we haven't thematized emotion um and and seeing how deeply you know or, you know how deeply it's operate operating in um in the mind you know in the in the works and the the stories and the narratives from india so um if it if it by thematizing this word emotion or related words it it it, it helps to generate further research then that would also be a win for me
1: were there particular surprises in your research or terms that that sort of stayed with you, or or stuck out in your mind, or you saw differently through this project.
2: Um, yeah, um, one word that I spent some quite a bit of time thinking about is "suka." So this is a word for pleasure, or happiness, or bliss. And one of the things that I just sort of got really deeply into. Maybe even my Sukha uh, entry got a little bit too long. Um, but what I was fascinated with is that um, in the Pali sources, the Pali Buddhist sources, Sukha really is a term for uh, nirvana. Um, but it's also, readers will know, or Sanskritists and Pali scholars will know that. Uh, sukha is also kind of the opposite of dukkha, so it just means pleasure. Um, and, and so, one of the things that I began to see as I tried to chart it uh, or trace it in the in the Pali Suttas is the extent to which uh, the Buddha is being extremely playful with this word suka. Um, on the one hand, uh, rejecting sukha, pleasure, as the kind of pleasure that's based in desire, the satisfaction of desire. On the other hand, talking about sukha by changing its meaning, sometimes in the very same passage, to refer to nirvana, um, a kind of happiness that has nothing to do with the satisfaction of desire. And so there's some very sublime passages in the in the Pali Suttas about this, where um for example the buddha as a young man before he had really even begun his religious quest he was still living in the palace but he has this experience under a jambu tree where he um he sits down and and he experiences what some of the the jhanas these advanced meditation states and then he he pulls out of it and and he wonders well, why why am i afraid of these kinds of sukha that have nothing to do with the satisfaction of or the gratification of desire is he pulls out of, why am i afraid of that and then his next thought is i am not afraid of the sukha that has nothing to do with sensual desire and so there's a kind of really interesting kind of work that he's doing with happiness and dukkha gets all the attention in the early Buddhist stuff that it's all about dukkha and getting rid of suffering but the flip side of it of course is this idea of sukha and then you have moments where the the buddhist followers will ask him how could Nirvana be sukha? What kind of sukha involves no pleasure, no gratification? And and the Buddha will just say really sublime things. Just that, monks. That it, Nirvana doesn't involve pleasure. That itself is this happiness I'm talking about. So I got kind of into that for a while. Um, I've been very interested also in in just beautiful things that popped up. Um, I love the. The Bhavabhuti's uh treatment of Chakshuraga. This is a little thing. Um, I love Chakshuraga. And he talks about I love is what um people who have some kind of relationship that they that's maybe written in the stars, um, that uh when they when their eyes first meet, they 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 love they discover a deep love. Um and I think that that uh Bhavabhuti's treatment of this is so beautiful And the way that he talks about um how because the poets have taught us this word, I love, we know it's real. Um, and so that's some of the thinking that's going on in some of the text, particularly the uh the copy and material and the literary aesthetics that uh, the poets give us terms that um that make reality. They they teach us what's real. They bring into being what is real. And that's deeply part of Bhava Bhuti's thought. Um, but it co- pops up in these wonderful ways with emotion terms that when we have a term for emotion, then we can then experience it. Um, so these are just a couple of examples of things that I was just as I was thinking about this this morning, what would I talk about as some of my favorite <laughs> moments of discovery. Um, but I can talk about more, but I'm sure you have other questions. Yeah
1: yeah they're they, well the, much like the book itself i I've said this comment probably half a dozen times that my question's always meant to be um generative more than limiting and so it's it's about the conversation um that you know uh, just to give listeners another taste here's another randomly a vihara vihara isn't an emotion <laughs> it's a condition but it is a condition so saturated with feeling that it must be in- included among our treasures. Vihara is the state of being separated from the one you love, and in Sanskrit letters, it is ground zero of the deepest longing, anguish, and despair of the human heart as it pines for the distant lover. Vihara is the condition that makes possible the agonizing relish that is that is vipralamba, love and separation. It's just it's lovely lovely uh i i can envision a number of applications for this type of work but i wonder uh, it certainly certainly there'll be a variety of responses to this but who do you think um this is most for who might most benefit from having a look at this kind of work
2: um Well, I, I don't know who, who will benefit or benefit in what (laughs) way, but um, I, you know, I, I did want from the beginning, I'm sort of straddling two horses um, in a complicated way, because I did want this to be accessible to a general leadership. So I really wanted to keep some of the, the jargon and the sense, you know, the deep apparatus. I mean, every Every entry, as you know, from looking at it has, you know, I give references for it, but I'm not just pulling this stuff out of thin air. It comes from particular texts that I wanted scholars to be able to track down and look at for themselves. So that was deeply important to me. But my first audience was always um, a general readership that people who maybe who are interested in emotions from other traditions. So I've been doing some work with classicists um, who are interested in, you know, expanding in a more global vision of what work on is emotions or so people who are doing emotions research in different areas could pick up my book on Indian material and get access to it and see the richness here and see the possibilities here. So I wanted that audience. I wanted people who are generally interested in India, but are not necessarily scholars, but who know the epics or want to know more about yoga traditions or Buddhism or something that they could pick it up and, and get access to some of these, uh, ideas. So, um, so that's the, you know, I don't know, you know, who of those is, you know, gonna, you know, how this will sit. I really don't know how it, how it's going to land or who it's going to benefit if it benefits anybody. But I do hope that these different kinds of audiences will find something in it just because of the diversity and the range of things I'm talking about that might make them think about human experience in fresh ways. That would be, that would be my hope.
1: produced this book um, and spent a fair bit of time researching and thinking about these uh, the word bhava comes to mind, you know, these moods mindsets uh, uh, modes, right, these emotions broadly conceived do you, in your particular perspective, see um, uh, see in the Indic tradition that there are certain emotions that are harped on or fleshed out in a way that may not be so in our sort of modern western mindset you know what 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 strikes you about this in the context
2: um yeah so well, certainly i think i mean i've leaned pretty so you mentioned bhava so i lean pretty heavily into rasa theory uh which was a great pleasure for me to kind of think about some of india's systems approaches or systematic approaches so it's not just the Here's a bunch of words it's also what does rasa theory where we see indian thought you know thinkers kind of theorizing their own experience particularly in the realm of aesthetics you know what what can they teach us and so The word bhava, of course, is such bigger than emotion, um, ways of being, I think it might be how I translate it. Um, So some of the entries are are bringing out kind of these bigger theoretical systems that I think think that would be good for, um, I mean, the treatment of aesthetics and Bharata's texts and his successors and the literary traditions is such a fascinating um, treatment of aesthetic, not just aesthetic experience, but also philosophical anthropology of what humans are like emotionally uh, in ways that I think scholars are just beginning to sort of explore. But in terms of words that um, we just don't have anything for in inter- in English or that, you know, that they give the carve up experience so differently and that that there are but deep preoccupations in the Indic traditions. I like some of the, the vocabulary of clashes um, Kaleshas are these kind of depravities or afflictions that um that not just Buddhist thinkers but also all the, the ascetic traditions are grappling with in one way or another. How do you get rid of uh deep-seated negative emotions? Another related word is asavas, uh in the Pali tradition, that, a word that I translate in its most literal way, oozings, so that we have these kalatias and oozings. Asavas are deeply seated um emotional temperamental dispositions that are have been in part of our experience from the beginning of time right they come to us from across lives um and they have to be uprooted they have to be you know how do you get rid of them so it's both a kind of deeply um grim picture of what human beings are like in some way we've got anger we have ignorance we have delusion we, we're just driven by lust and greed in, in really deep ways um, but it's also an extraordinarily optimistic picture that actually Nirvana or moksha is a complete eradication of uh these uh dispositions that I think uh maybe other psychologies take to be uh fundamental and basic to human our human endowments so I think that kind of um Stuff. I think um, some of the, wor- the words I have in there in vasanas and the samskaras, this, deep, this idea of deep traces on us from the distant past um, that is pretty important to the religious literatures, but also a deeply important uh, kind of poetic conceit, as we know from that very, very beautiful verse that's quoted all over the place um, in the recognition of Shakuntala where uh, the vasanas are those deep memory traces from the past so that when dushanta has forgotten shakuntala he um he hears beautiful music that um that reminds him of a distant lover in the past but that he's forgotten because he hears something beautiful and so what uh, sometimes the, the religious and aesthetic literatures are quite disapproving of, of how deep our dispositions run. Uh, the poets pick up with great beauty to think about, I think perhaps the most romantic con- conceit ever, that that love is 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 picking up something that was there in a distant past. Um, and that be- beauty and beautiful music and beautiful poetry can, can bring it forward for us. Um, so that kind of stuff, I think is, I think we get just a very different psychology than we have in in the Western tradition that, um, that opens up possibilities for what we might think about.
1: Are there certain texts or genres of texts in particular that you rely on for the book?
2: So, um, I do a lot with the epics. So you'll see a lot of material from the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, um, which I think are great studies of human experience. Um, and I do a lot, as I just mentioned, with Rasa theory, Bharata not only gives us this, this so this early uh, text text about dramaturgy, Bharata, maybe third or fourth century, wrote this book on dramaturgy, the Natya Shastra, that um, gives us a whole theory about, it's not entirely clear how it all works, but the rudiments of a theory about the relationship of human emotional experience and and the refinement of that into rasa or uh, kind of aesthetic experience. And so in that he has a deep treatment of uh, a lot of emotion words, lots of definitions in them. And this inaugurates a whole uh, millennium beyond a further exploration of these terms and how they produce and how how emo- aesthetic experience is produced. So I lean very heavily into that. Um, but of course, I'm also working on the, the Buddhist psychology, <laughs> um, particularly the Abhidharma, Abhidharma traditions, which you also have extremely meticulous um disaggregation of human experience into, you know, very long lists of of terms, not all of which are emotions, but some of which are, that are all interacting. Um, so it's a kind of ana- analytical approach to experience, to break it down into smaller bits, and then to see how those smaller bits of experience interact. And so that to me was uh, like another really important systems approach to, to work with. So um and then I was just after that just looking at literature, um reading the wonderful translations of so many of our colleagues, you know, who who do beautiful work on on poetry, David Shulman and Sheldon Pollock and Martha Selby and and others um that that just you know that give us a lot of pleasure.
1: Um all uh, brilliant uh, translators you mentioned. Um, um I w- will say there's something Utterly alluring about the work of David Schulman. <laughs> um, we hope to have him on the podcast soon. Speaking of folks we've had on the podcast, the, my last guest happened just happened to be um, um, Chakravarty Ramprasad. Uh-huh. And you each acknowledge each other <laughs> in, in your forwards. It was fascinating. Um, is this work that you will continue in some sense?
2: Yeah. So I've had a really productive um, set of conversations with Ram Prasad uh, about all of these texts. And he was actually very extremely helpful for me in terms of he knows the Indian tradition so well. So he could point me to um, particular, you know, areas that I needed to look at and kind of, see, I think he saved me probably from a lot of gaffes and mistakes <laughs> I would have otherwise had in the book. But we've also worked with another colleague, Rose, Roy Zohar, Um in, in Israel on a, a volume together that was a kind of uh, a Bloomsbury handbook of emotions. So we've we've had a conversation for some time about how to carve out this area of emotions research and what that might look like. So that's been a really productive, he's more of his work has been on sort of bodily experience um, although now he's turning to emotions. Um, I think and kind of working more systematically than my kind of lexical approach did. But in terms of my uh, further directions, I d- I'm not sure where I'm going to go with. I right now I'm very deeply into translating, so I've had the privilege of uh, being asked to translate the Melinda Panha, uh the Questions of King Melinda, which is a really important Buddhist text um, that kind of describes a, a conversation, perhaps an imagined conversation, or perhaps a real conversation between a Greek king and a Buddhist monk, and the. In the first century or so BCE, Um, and so I'm I'm doing that for the Murti Classical Library of India. So I've been working on that, and I've discovered that I really love translation, and I really like translating. So I think my I'm kind of taking a little break right now, but I think you know where I want to go next is with more translation work. And part of that was because because of the treasury, I got to follow so many choices people made about translation. I learned a huge amount from. from go, you know, seeing how translations work, and then trying to figure out how I, how I could, you know, think about them in my own within my own framework of the treasury, and um, so just learning that from people like David Shulman, and so many others, uh, was 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 good for my thinking about what it what the whole business of translation is.
1: I'm so um, glad to hear, actually, that you'll be applying because it just occurred to me. Uh, it occurred to me that you know. Uh, that you must have internalized so much about the process um so i'm really glad to hear you'll be consciously and unconsciously applying that um in rendering translations for us um but could you say just a, a word about your process if you've had one like, what's the translation process like for you
2: Well, um, again, I had never really seen myself as a translator, so I'm just figuring this out. Um, I had seen myself more working in philosophy, so the whole turn to the literary has been um, developing a literary sensibility and has been part of, I mean, I think you're right to say that I internalized a lot um, when doing the Treasury, and I hadn't seen that that would be an, an outcome, but it has help me. So, so all I can speak of is how I've been working on the Melinda Panha, the the questions of Melinda. And I find it to be absolute wonderful pleasure. I mean, what's nice about it is you're not casting out there with your own argument, you're following somebody else. You're just trying to put the right words and the right ideas into place. And so I've actually found it to be a, a more calming um practice than a lot of our scholarly, you know, argument driven work that we do. And I find that it, it has its own pacing. And as long as you're coming to it, regularly and you set aside time to get in there. And it's, if it's one paragraph a day, that's amazing. You know, if, if you can get a page or two a day, you know, or a page or two a week, that's amazing. You know, but so it has its own kind of pacing as long as you're just keeping the game um, as you follow along. And with the Melinda panda it, it brought me into all kinds of other things. Like so it's this is a text that ranges across Buddhist philosophy, but also so many other places of, of Indian thought and in ancient India. I've had to research the flora and the fauna and the, the kinds of food people eat. And, um, you know, so I never know one day to the next what I'm going to have to plunge into to figure out what he's talking about. So that also has been just kind of nice to, 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 to just be following a you know following a thinker and trying to understand him and uh, trying to put it into English and it just I don't know I, I I don't want to stop translating that's what I sort of figured out
1: <laughs> I don't Beautiful. know if I'll
2: ever write any other kind of book again I hope to just keep translating.
1: Brilliant, uh, I find it so you know clearly as scholars our left brains work one would hope fairly well. Uh, Compared to the average bear, perhaps, um, and yet monographs—the best monographs are the ones, in my particular view, that that um, exhibit a fair bit of creativity and uh, storytelling, and 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 presentation. Um, um, whether the scholar has a, a flair for literature or not, there is there will inevitably inevitably be uh, an umsha, a, a pinch of 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 of, of, of sort of. Um, um, literary pizzazz and their work for it to be accessible and whole in some sense. Um, it, it, so so for me, producing scholarship is it's it, there's it's cr- it's creative, but it's primarily analytic. And translating is the opposite, where it's primarily creative, with a you know with a whole bunch of analysis going in and thinking. And I've been wonderfully spoiled, uh, such that the um, uh, my primary objects of, uh, of study um, that, that online has been uh, translated by the Goldman Project. Um, Coburn's done a solid translation of the Devi Mahatmya that I, I quote even in both my books. Um, and it's only in the past six months or so that I <laughs> that I've sat down and I've churned out a translation, a new translation of the Devi Mahatmya. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, wonderful.
1: Uh, okay. Where you know, in, in to my mind, I thought, oh, it's it's been done, like you know. But really, it's been it's been thirty years, and you know, it's uh, from some encouragement from some colleagues and some demands from some students. Uh, <laughs> Uh, apparently it's time so i I, i've turned out a a new translation and the the process is so it's it's so it's just different it's just such a different process i mean they're tired like what do you do when you taste something in a verse but it's not in any of the words in that verse (laughs) do you add an adjective in english because that's what you feel you need to add and yet if somebody was 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 directly comparing the Sanskrit to the English wait a minute that adjective isn't isn't there in the Sanskrit you know at what point do you sacrifice the literary from what you perceive to be what you taste it's palpable to you the verses Mm -hmm. sort of saying and um but uh We'll see. We'll see how, how well the translations received I actually did a little bit. Uh, I did a, a recent public book called the stories behind the poses where there was 50 vignettes from the Puranas and, and, and the epics, but that was, you know, a lot of that was rendering and retelling. It was just, you know, you know, looking over the Sanskrit or going over from memory, a bit of both and, and literally telling it as a, I would tell it in a class in a, but in a more literary and sustained manner. But, um, uh, perhaps at some point we'll have a podcast dedicated to the to, to, to the um the perils and, and the beauty of translation yeah. anyhow i've said too much clearly um is there anything else about the book that you hope we touch on today
2: um not that i can think of um you know i I, yeah, no, I think that's probably um, much of what I wanted to, to hopefully have come through. I, I do appreciate your comments on translation. We are, it does feel like a different part of our, of our work. And um, how do you, how do you produce a translation that um, is true to the text, but also works in English. And, and so one of the things I've learned from the Murthy is that you have to, I think that we don't need to follow Sanskrit syntax. We don't have to have these kind of convoluted, you know, passive voice constructions. We really do need to follow English syntax, um, and make it, make it live in English, um, and so, and yet, you know, how do you, so it's really an art, I think, more than a, even a science um, of how you, you're tr- you know, you get the meaning and you're not adding too much, but you're also making it work in a completely different linguistic world. Um, yeah.
1: Fascinating and appropriate place to end. Um, thank you for appearing on the podcast today.
2: Thank you, Raj. I really appreciate it.
1: For those of you listening, um, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Miraheim on a brand new, fascinating, rich publication called Words for the Heart, a treasury of emotions from classical India. It's a brand new uh, Princeton University Press. Um, Check it out. I think you might be surprised what you learn about ancient India, um, Indic philosophy, spirituality, and um, the human experience itself. Until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and uh, keep contemplating um, emotions across cultures. Take care.